Welcome to the A-Game Podcast with Nick LaMagna, digging into the minds and experiences of some of today's brightest entrepreneurs in real estate and business, along with Hollywood stars, UFC fighters, and your favorite rock bands. People that have figured out how to overcome obstacles, take chances, live boldly, and no matter what they do, they always bring their A-game. I get a lot of questions from people on uh, wanting to pick my brain, wanting to ask me about what I do, how do I do it, all kinds of things across the spectrum. One of the things I try and answer back with is there's a few different ways that we can work together. People can either um, participate by being a buyer, being a seller, or being a partner, and that's really the best way to learn. So if people have questions that have reached out to me, the best thing to do is jump on www.nicknicknick.com. And you can schedule a consultation if you're looking to sell properties, buy part properties, partner on some deals, or just get a general consultation to see where we can even fit in and where we can do business together on any level. There's options for that to set some stuff up. So please visit www.nicknicknick.com to buy, to sell, or to partner on real estate deals or opportunities. That is the place to go. That is the best way to start making money and learning the process. All right, my guest today on the A-Game Podcast is my good buddy Shane Carter from Community Investment Properties. I said that correctly. I said, so, yeah, uh, you did. I'm in some uh, masterminds with Shane. Uh, we were starting to get some traction going in Chicago, but um, I really wanted to get on and talk to Shane. Not only are you uh, just a really fun guy to talk to, so I wanted to catch up with you anyway. What you do is very unique. I, I probably only know maybe two or three people tops out of all of the investment circles I run in of people that do what you specialize in. And again, you have a bunch of different stuff. I know you're, you're contracting, you're multi-units, you've done all kinds of investments, but you know, specifically um, the land use entitlement and the selling off of those projects and some of the ways you get them to put that money up. I just think it's fascinating. And, and for me, it was something that coming from a place like New York where there's no land anywhere that you can scoop up and then coming out here to Illinois where I was like, there's land everywhere like what do you do with it yeah. and then figuring out right. like, what really is the opportunity what's really the way to make money and um you know having somebody i got a lot of opinions from people on some of the stuff that i was talking to you about on my land and when i really got down and talked to investors like yourself that are doing it i'm i'm actually realizing that the people that were giving me that information don't know what they're talking about so you're a little mm -hmm. bit of a unicorn that i found is one of the only guys that's really on the front lines for projects like this and um I'll let you talk a little bit about a, a quick snapshot of, of your business, and then we'll go a little bit deeper into some of the things. But talk um, first off about your background and how you got into it. Have you always been in real estate? Did you start out as a contractor? And how did you really stumble into all the different exit strategies and asset classes that you're working in? Yeah. All right, man. So let's uh, let's see. I, I have a very unique background. I, I am not a traditional capitalist real estate investor. I actually started as more of a land preservation guy. Um, I've always been a naturalist. I've always been into being in nature. Uh, I got degrees. My degrees in college were forestry and wildlife biology. Went out west, worked for the Forest Service for a while, uh, and really wanted to sort of make an impact on conservation of land. Uh, so complete shift, right? But not necessarily, uh, because what I do now, it, what I realized was that if I really wanted to make it a, an, an impact in a positive manner in terms of how our land is used and how we develop and how we look at societies and healthy communities, uh, that I had to have capital. 
that that's the only way to really affect it on any any scale in any way, shape, or form. So um, so I became a capitalist, and uh, and and I've enjoyed that, never looked back. But what I do is um, my communities over fifty percent of the land is always put into conservation, uh, and so that's my concept of sustainability. If we're if we're always conserving land while we're developing it. I think there's uh, um, there's something to be said about that. Now, let's let's be uh, I guess let's be real about this. I'm in New Hampshire, so I have the benefit of lots of land spaces to be able to to put 50% of the land into conservation. You know, if you're in you know uh, Hoboken, New Jersey, there's no way you're doing that, right? If, if you're maybe a little bit further east of you, there's no way you're doing that. So it's um, I I do have. Uh, to have that benefit of, of available land around me. So I kind of got into real estate investing first um, and you know, came back east here after, after being out west, uh, got my real estate license, started flipping small properties, um, but was always studying land and how land developers worked um, and uh, became a contractor uh, because you know, from flipping real estate, I, I sort of learned about that and really got enamored with it and, and really wanted to become an expert in construction. Uh, so I've had a construction firm for the last 16 years. Um, and I really watched what developers did. So I wasn't a developer through the sort of 2000 to 2006 run up, if you will, of massive land development that we saw. But what I saw, it sort of disgusted me. I didn't see a lot of good land use practices being being utilized then. I didn't see a lot of, um, I saw a lot of uh, people maximizing density and, and making huge, huge profits in the process, but not necessarily doing it in, in what I thought was a, a thoughtful or sustainable manner. So um, after the after the uh, the crash in 08, um, you know, I, I started looking more seriously at developing land in around 2012 through 14. I did some solar developments, some PV development projects, um, and those were those were great. And then I started doing land projects. So I've I've got a really unique background from an environmental standpoint, and then a bricks and sticks construction standpoint, which I believe makes me a very good land developer because I understand all of the aspects of it from, from cradle to grave on, on why it makes sense to develop land a certain way and why it doesn't. Um, and then conversely, to someone buying an entitled project and building it out, what are their needs? What are their profit margins need to be? What do they need to buy the land for? What are their cost basis? What are their profit expectations? Uh, and how is their meat on the bone every step of the way for everybody in the process? Um, so. That's a, I guess, a quick synopsis on uh, on on my my background on how I got from A to B. Sure. No, I think that's really cool, and uh, you know, it's it's interesting to me because you look at just the basic premise of wholesale or sales in general, just buying something that's that's got value, and you know, the Costco model, I guess. But I talk to people that are wholesaling residential properties, and they're making, you know, sometimes they're making five hundred bucks, and then there's properties that I've wholesaled on the residential side that have made one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. And then there's people that are wholesaling apartment buildings. And it really is the same essential principles of if you know how to speak the language, if you know how to analyze the numbers, and you know how to figure it out. And again, with your background, knowing all the construction costs, all those other things that I really wouldn't know, or the average person wouldn't know, that you can speak that language to your end buyer. It's just a matter of getting educated, but it's really the same process with just a different product. So your product has a lot more value, but the mechanics of it 
there's probably deals that people have worked on for months on the residential side to make a thousand dollars that you probably worked on for six months with the same amount of energy and effort and made seven figures on. Like it's just, it's interesting to me, but somebody will look at me, oh, you can't do that. It's like, well, how come you can do it with, you know, a, a thing of toilet paper or a house, but you can't do it with a, you know, 40 acre parcel of land. Like just that mindset of like, yeah, you can. Yeah. I think it's really cool. And it's just something I didn't think about. Yeah. Well, that's cool, man. And you're absolutely right. You know, people, people do it with whatever they're passionate about, you know, people buy uh, campers, right. Fix them up and flip them and make profit. People do it with cars and go-karts and snowmobiles around here. And, and uh, you know, if that's what you're into. So yeah, we just do it on a different scale and a different thought process, but it's a little bit different, I guess, than, than just straight wholesaling because we do create value in the process, right? We do take the raw land, um, place entitlements on it, get it fully entitled for a specific, whether it's a multifamily or condos, you know, quadplexes, single family residential developments. We get it entitled and approved and what we call shovel ready, ready to be built. And then we sell that entitlement to someone who wants to go uh, to go along on it and build it out. Um, but you're absolutely right. It, it takes the knowledge of sort of backing your way down a pro forma of what is what is the bricks and sticks guy need to buy it for? Uh, what are my infrastructure costs? How much does it cost to build a road, to run the power, uh, to, to do the city, to do the water and sewer? All of those numbers back you down into all right, how much is it going to cost me to entitle the land with surveys and engineers and wetland scientists um, and, uh, and engineering on the parcels? And then you can back down into, well, here's what I can reasonably pay for the land then, right? So you're right. It, it takes a lot of knowledge of every step from, from beginning to end to be able to know whether or not you're even looking at a good deal um, to be able to, to entitle it and flip it out. Yeah, man. And it's, it's so crazy because it really is one of those things where, I think people tend to undercomplicate land. Like there's people that are always like, I need to know all these things about flipping a house. Like, ah, there's a piece of land. I'll just take it and flip that. And I'm like, well, there's so many more moving pieces and costs and timelines and things involved. And even like we were just talking about for just even looking at how difficult is your city and the people in your city to work with could completely change that process. And, you know, there, yeah. there was one deal we were looking at and something as basic as the curb cut, they wouldn't put the curb cut where they needed so every business that was trying to go there you would have had to loop all the way back around and pull in it just didn't make sense so like a small thing like how come the city won't let you do that because now my traffic's not going to turn around and go to this shop they're going to drive down the road to the other one it's just, just little things like you know the just parking stuff you know we went to the meeting and we went through all the things and we parking's huge and they were like we've had major parking issues in other developments can you reshift this yeah. so that way people are so it's a cool thing. So um, just to show people some of the numbers before we backtrack into some of the things that you said and get into some of the details, talk through just, I don't know if you could really say an average because the properties are all, but just a, an example or a case study of some numbers for something you would tie it up, timelines and some profit margins for what you would make if you were going to take a property or a piece of land, get it entitled, do all the legwork and then sell it off to an end developer. Sure. Um, well, I'll, I'll talk about one that, uh, that we're doing right now. Um, we put together three parcels of land. Uh, it aggregates to um, 124 acres. Uh, we got, it's, it's under agreement currently for 1.35 million. Um, we have in our, so what we did was we, we put together purchase and sale agreements. We put deposits down. 
and we ask the landowners that they have to hold the land for us until we get, we'll pay them the 1.35, but we have to get through the entitlement process. And if at any point in time we fail or back out, all of the money and resources that we're pouring into their properties to get them entitled is automatically assignable to them. So that's sort of the, the, uh, the safety blanket, the safety net that protects these folks while we wait. It's generally a nine to 12 month process in our area to get land entitled fully, especially at that scale. In smaller parcels, smaller developments, um, you can maybe get done in, in four to six months. Uh, but this one uh, is, let's call it a year, right? So um, I'll spend probably $250,000 getting it entitled, getting it developed, uh, getting it approved for development. Uh, and in this case, it'll be about 120 uh, uh, single family units that we'll be able to put on this parcels. Uh, and again, we'll conserve probably more than 60% of that land will be conserved. So we try to do clustered housing developments, uh, lots of open space, lots of recreation areas, lots of uh, uh, places for people to enjoy nature, uh, and communities that really feel good as well. They're connected, they feel good when you drive in, um, but, but they're also not all spread out everywhere, right? So, um, so anyway, we'll, we'll get that approved, and in 12 months, that will probably, conservatively, we'll sell that for about $3.5 million. So that's what a typical deal looks like for um, from cradle to grave. And again, the, the, the cool thing, I think the thing that interested you the most about what I do is that 1.35 million, I never actually give that to the seller of the land, right? I, I put up the deposit money, I put up the 250 grand, and then the, buy, the end buyer, the end developer of this, that's gonna pay me 3.5 million because they're gonna profit 12 million on it, right? I just, part of that money goes to the land owner and the rest stays with me. Gotcha. So it's a, it's a great way to create value without using a lot of actual capital. And now, so the, the 250, do you ever use, um, or did you start out using, if somebody doesn't have the 250, would you use private funds? Is there uh, transactional funding or some type of bridge loans or something like that to put those things up? That's the problem. It's pretty <laughs> difficult actually to get lenders or, uh, or, or folks who aren't in the space to give you money. Because remember, there's nothing for them to tie it to. There's nothing for them to encumber with that because you don't own the land. The landowner still owns the land. You're just creating value uh, on the land and then closing on it when you create that value. So it's difficult. Um, you know, I use lines of credit, you know, obviously cash on hand, but, uh, but we, have, we have, you know, some lines of credit. Um, and I do have a network of, of folks that I've gotten to know over the last few years that are in my space uh, that are that for whatever reason have just retired out of it and become more passive, but they get it. They were developers in their active life. Maybe they're 65, 70, 75 now. They're sitting on a pile of money. They still like to play and dabble, and we're talking about real small amounts of money to them uh, and really, really big returns, right? So Let's say on that deal um, that I just told you about, there's, there's, you know, call it roughly two million in profits, right? Well, what if somebody gave you two hundred fifty thousand uh, dollars? What, what kind of ROI would you offer someone because you knew you were going to get two million? Shit, I'd offer them three hundred percent, right? You give me two fifty, I'll give you back seven hundred fifty grand. So th there's a lot of uh, meat on the bone to entice people to invest, but you're, I think, in my experience, you're really only going to get someone 
who's already comfortable with that process and gets it and understands it and can really look into your business model and your track record, uh, vet you and, and be comfortable with, with them putting up their money at risk. Sure. You know, and again, I, I think that there's probably to a fold to that, you know, starting out, it's going to be a little, a little dicey, but with the track record like that, you know, lenders for the most part of my experience are going to look at the deal and they're going to look at the person. So you probably have people that are lending to you that understand what you're doing. So they believe they know how to speak the language of those projects, but then there's probably people that go, I have no idea what the hell you just said, but you sound like you know what you're talking about and you've done it enough time. So here you go. Like, I trust you. I like you. I like your character. So, um, it's just, again, a, a little bit different, but probably not all that much different than a private lender that doesn't know anything about real estate and goes, yeah, I'll cut you a check for 200 grand to buy this apartment building. I don't really know what you said, but you sound like you do. So again, like different product, but you having the confidence and the education and the track record really helps do that. You know, and one, one, one frees up a lot of capital for the next one in your arena. Yeah, sure does. Yeah. Yeah. So we don't, we don't really do a lot of, you know, we don't have investors to do that. But when I was getting started, I was looking hard at that. And of course, it's always the way with money, right? Now that you don't need the money, there's plenty of money out there that, uh, that you know, that would invest with you. But, uh, um, you know, the, the, the older I get to, the more I want to partner with others, the more I want to share, the more I want to, to help provide value. So there's some, uh, there's a couple of younger guys that want to get into this that have, you know, a little bit of money to throw around. And so I'm starting to do some deals with them, show them the rope, show them what I'm doing, how I'm doing it, uh, let them invest their money, you know, take way less of the profits, but still sort of usher them through the process. And, and that's been exciting uh, and, and fun and interesting for me. And I think the older and, and wiser I get, the more and more I'm, I'm going to be doing that. Uh, so, but yeah, if there's somebody that was looking to get into this, you know, you just start small, right? The first subdivision I did was I took a, a it was literally, it was a flip that I was going to do. And I happened to just figure out um, the fact that there was enough land there that I could do the flip on that house and subdivide off a piece of land and then, and then build a spec home on it. Um, so I did that because I was a builder. But if you're just a flipper, you could maybe subdivide that one lot off and sell it to a builder, right? And sort of increase profits that way. Um, but it takes a little bit of, Due diligence, a little bit of reading up, a little bit, a couple of phone calls to your local planning person to find out, hey, I just bought this property. I'm looking to buy this property. Uh, you know, what does the zoning look like to be able to create an additional lot? It looks like there's enough room to put another lot home next to it on that side lot. Uh, how does that work? What does that look like? Sometimes you run into a planner like you did that is super friendly, knowledgeable, wants to share what they know, uh, and well usher you through that process. Um, that's how, that's what I did. That was my first subdivision was, uh, was just subdividing one lot into two, right. And made an extra 60 grand or whatever doing so. Nice. Yeah. I mean, even that just basic of a strategy, um, one of my other buddies that does some similar stuff to you, he goes, you know what, whenever we just want a, a, like a quick 50 grand, we'll go and we'll just figure out what the lot size in, in our area, we'll go on the MLS and we'll just buy a house that's got double a lot. We'll get a good deal on the house, but we'll re redevelop or subdivide that, sell that off, own that other house free and clear, and then we're good to go. And it's just an interesting thing of like, even people that are doing it on the single family side, like you said, if you want to make it bite size, yeah. figure out the lot size, jump on the MLS or get some people to do that for you and find a house that's on something that's got two or three lots and see if you can build on them. And again, for we tried to do that in New York. And this is a, a thing that it's really been 
uh, one of the experiences that going through it, I truly feel, especially in this, is really the only way to learn because I, I have to keep coming back with, hey, they said this, they did this, is this normal, is that normal? Like, just didn't have a reference point for it. And when we went to the, the village in New York in Nassau County, they were just, they were terrible. And the we got <laughs> conference calls, I was like, yes, my partner from Utah. Like, they wouldn't look at you, they made you sit out there, there was no flexibility, they weren't giving you answers, and it was like, you know what, like, this is just not gonna work. So, um, yeah. going through and finding some stuff like that, were you, I guess probably not in that, but on some of these bigger projects, um, I like what you're doing with them because especially now with all this stuff going on with the viruses and people not having a great clear picture on what's going to happen in the market and three months, let alone a year or however long it's going to take for the actual end user to build these out. When we were talking in, um, I don't think it was Park City, uh, in Orlando, when we were talking in Orlando and we were going over some stuff and I was like, man, we have this land where we're meeting with the village, but what do we do? Do we build it out or we just sell the project? And you were immediately like, sell the project, don't build it out. And especially in a time like now, that makes so much more sense because you're taking that risk off. So another right. who's used to doing that, they can put that two to three year risk on there and figure that out. But I really like the idea of you. I mean, obviously it's a longer play for getting in, getting out, getting paid. It does take some time, but the carrot at the end of that is huge. So um, talk to me a little bit about some of the cool things you were saying as far as during the process, once you have some credibility there, you actually had other people like the civil engineers put up their own money for some of this stuff. So you're almost into this for no cost at all. So talk a little yeah. bit about that. And then I'm also interested to hear because people might say, well, what if you put up 250 grand, the deal doesn't go through in a year later, like how long is, is the due diligence on these projects when you tie them up under contract? And what are the contingencies for refunding a large deposit like that if you don't get an end buyer to build it or the city doesn't approve the stuff? Yeah, so that's, you know, I'll speak to the last one first, which is that's, that's really the big risk. So in, in any, uh, anything having to do with real estate, there's a, there's a relationship between risk and reward, right? So you're taking a big risk, but you're getting a big reward. The, the big risk is, and how you mitigate that risk is, you really drill into what is allowed for the entitlement by right. What are you allowed to do where if, if you have to get a lawyer and just sue the city, sue somebody to, to get what is by right yours, then you want to make sure that you know that to the T before you start. Um, so it's not subjective, right? In, in my case, on that deal I told you about, um, the 120 lots, you know, what was subjective was it would, I knew for a fact the minimum was 104 lots, right? That is my buy right number. I, you cannot not approve me for 104 lots. Now, with some creativity and some density bonuses and working within the existing zoning in that community, we were able to get a, a bonus density that allowed us to get to 120 units, um, but it wasn't guaranteed. So, what did I do when I underwrote the thing? I underwrote it at 104 because that's a guarantee. Uh, anything I get over that is just, you know, cherries on top. So I underwrite every project at what their base level of entitlement is, that, that you're guaranteed to get that entitlement no matter what. Um, and, you know, frankly, you know, if you, if you think you can get more than that, you, you just consider that a bonus. So that's really the main risk right there. Uh, and then the other risks to understand are always relative to, uh, 
you know, having really, really good people around you. Everything in our business is about having good people around you. So having really, really good engineers, having good lawyers, um, having, you know, I have my wetland scientist is, is, uh, is someone that I would call a friend, right? He's, he's a guy that I know where I can call him up in a moment's notice and say, Hey, Mark, I'm interested in this piece of land. Let's go take a walk. Let's check it out. And he'll hop in his car and head over there with me. And, you know, for a couple hundred bucks, uh, you know, or, or maybe a six pack sometimes, he'll tell me, you know, exactly how he feels about the property, what he thinks from a development perspective. Is this a high ecological area? Is this not, you know, what does this look like um, from, from that perspective? Uh, hydrologically speaking, you know, what, what's going on with this land? Um, and so for pretty short money, you can do a lot of due diligence up front, and really get a sense of where this thing's going to go wrong. For me, I don't put any hard money down until I know for a fact what I can get. So the deposit money is generally speaking refundable up into you know a typical 30 to 90 day due diligence period, right? After that, it goes hard and, and you're not getting it back. But generally speaking, that's only you know, maybe 10, 5, 10, 15, 20 grand, depending on the size of the piece of land you're putting together. That's all the deposit usually needs to be. And the reason those uh, deposits are so low is you explain to the, to the landowner, to the seller, hey, look, I'm about to go spend a ton of money on your property, hundreds of thousands of dollars, that if I'm not successful, will become your value. Um, you know, knock on wood, I've never had a project go down the road and then and then ever lose that hard money, um, but it can happen, right? You, and you have to sort of be prepared to walk away in, in any project like that. So that's, I guess, how you mitigate the risk. The money you spend though, for, for your engineer, for your wetland scientists, for, for your civil engineering, for your legal, you're not getting that back, no matter what. Either, either, you're, gonna, either you're going to the finish line or you're getting a payday or that money's gone, right? So that's a real risk that, that needs to be understood. And, and again, mitigated with upfront analysis of what you can do there so um to to the other question you asked right which uh, uh remind me again well exactly. you you the civil engineers the architects yeah, the right, how i got them to so yeah one of the first big developments i did um i basically partnered with the engineer that was going to take it through and, and their cost was you know, by far the biggest. This was about, it was about 150 grand was going to be their cost. Um, and even though I had the money, again, I had did the analysis of how much juice was in the deal. And, um, and I knew that these guys, some commercial assets that they invested in real estate, that they knew the market. Um, and I presented the deal to them. I said, guys, look, here's the land I put together. Here's what I want to do for a residential development on it. Here's where I think the numbers are. Here's where, you know, where I think your cost basis should be about 150 and they agreed to that. And I said, look, if you guys want to invest in this with me and you put up the 150 grand to get us through entitlements, I will share profits with you 50-50, which on that particular deal was about, you know, just a million in profits. So they put up their 150 in labor, which maybe their cost, it was, you know, 100 or 120 or something, right? Uh, of just their in-house working staff and engineers, surveyors, draftsmen, et cetera, et cetera. And they got a huge payday for it, but they believed in the project and they believed in the vision. They believed in what we were doing. Uh, and again, we were well within our rights to achieve the density and the layout and the housing. And we knew it was a, 
very desirable zip code. So we knew that the end product, you, you know, that we'd find a buyer for the entitlement very, very easily, which we did. We, we literally found a buyer before we even had it entitled uh, and they inked on the line. And so we, we had guaranteed profits before we even had it entitled. So that was, you know, again, a creative way to cut interested parties in on the deal. Now it doesn't work all the time, but to the extent that you can, uh, there's plenty of juice uh, on, in these deals to share. So yeah, that, that's a technique that definitely has worked in the past and I would not hesitate to use again in a second if you know, I had cash flow concerns. Sure, and I mean, again, you, you're not gonna get it all the time, but if you don't ask for it, you're never gonna get it, right? So might as well take, yeah. take the shot if you can. You know? and, uh, and again, back to your point is, um, maybe you start with a smaller project just to make those relationships and get your name out there a little bit because I'm sure, same with you, some of these cities, it's a lot of the same players. So if you keep popping up there and getting deals done and making things happen and making money, it's going to help your, your credibility there. Even with probably just getting approvals and stuff, if they know you're, you know, you stand behind good projects and you're coming in there trying to get a certain property entitled versus some new guy that they have no experience with, you're probably going to have an easier time, I'm imagining. Exactly. And, and frankly, that's why, you know, that's why to me, it made all the sense in the world to partner with that engineering firm. They're a very well-respected firm. They had brought a number of projects through that particular municipality pre previously. Um, you know, the, the, the owner was a, you know, he's a sort of pillar of, of the community uh, and well-respected well gentleman. So I had them on my side. Not only that, but a lot of times in these things, um, they'll give you a price like, oh, we think it's going to be around 150 grand, but it's still, it's still T&M, right? It's still time and materials. You don't know what that actual cost is until you get down the road because frankly, from their perspective, they can't project exactly how many meetings it's going to take, exactly how many iterations they're going to have to go through, exactly you know, how many times the, the city's engineer is going to make them redo some engineering drawings. So they're sort of taking their best guess based on experience of what the project's going to cost. But at the end of the day, if that cost basis goes from 150 to 250, you know, they just shrug their shoulders and say, sorry, you know, you got to pony up that money, buddy. That's, that's not our fault. Um, so it was, that's the other side is if you can get an engineer that is good at this and knows what they're doing and will partner with you, um, you, your interests are aligned immediately. You don't have to manage that. You don't have to manage them and you don't have to manage, you know, where that, where, where their expenditures are going, because you know that um, their, your profit is their profit and, and everyone is, you know, in the same boat rowing in the same direction. And so as many times you can make that happen, that's, that's always important in any structure. That's super smart, man. So some of the, some of the terms you, you were mentioning, I don't know if the average investor even knows what it is. So I'm going to summarize this and then you can kind of pick it up or steer it. But when people are running around, they're going, oh, I have this land and, you know, it's by my grandmother's house. I wonder if I could do something with it. And then all of a sudden you look at it and you go, all right, well, you know, maybe I tie it under contract. Maybe I make a deal with the owner. And then what you're talking about, density and entitlement. So first off, entitlement, what's the specific purpose that you can get the city to approve that land for? So like, for instance, in ours, it was agricultural, raw land. So we went and talked to the city about what does the city need in, in the smaller experience that I've had it always helps to kind of take their lead and see what the comprehensive plan already had, what their vision was and, and start to use their people that they use normally. Cause again, like you said, if it's the same familiar faces and you, you want them to say yes. So they said, well, Hey, you can do 
townhomes. Townhomes are very desirable there. So we said, okay, great. But maybe they would have said an apartment building, which the one across the street could have been, or a coffee shop or whatever. So you go and then you have to get the civil engineers and get those guys in there. But if you're going to sell or build, that density is really the key to see what you can make on there. So the density being how many houses or how many doors you can get on the land. And the more you can squeeze on there, the more that project is worth. And I remember I was going back and forth with, uh, with Nicole, who's pop around somewhere and I said, uh, you know, I don't understand why would a builder buy that property off of me? Why wouldn't they just go find the land, go to the city and get any title? She was like, it's the same reason why you're, you could go and call realtors and, and call these sellers, but it's better for you to just go to a wholesaler, pay him five grand because he did all the legwork. He goes, and I was like, wow, it's right. like that. Cause you start to overcomplicate it and, and you're absolutely right. And when you go and you get that land entitled and you take it through that process, there's a lot more value to your builders. So now you can go out and you can sell that project. So did I, did I summarize that enough? To- yeah, yeah, absolutely, man. The only thing I would add to that is, you know, you got to look at the, the underlying market trends too, which is we're not in a, um, we're not in a saturated housing market. We're, we're in a housing, uh, you know, shortage nationwide yeah. uh some communities more so than others right some areas and regions more so than others i know here in new hampshire we have a severe uh housing shortage uh so the the market fundamentals are such that whether you're a, a big housing developer small medium you know housing developer the more entitled projects there are there's there's somebody there to buy them because we can't build it enough we can't build enough housing so, you know, I, I think Nicole's 100% correct about that too. But the only caveat I would throw in is, is that the market fundamentals are there. If we were in a saturated housing market, you don't want to be out entitled and developing land that nobody's going to buy because there's already too much housing. Sure. But that's not the case. And frankly, that I don't see that being the case, you know, for quite some time. Yeah, I agree. And some of the things you're saying, like the when people try and figure out, well, well, what can I, what do I have to have for like the wetlands or how can we structure this uh, where the, the parking winds up or how can I set this that I can get the maximum amount of houses on there? Well, that's exactly what you're paying your civil engineers for. They're going to do that work. You're right. Because I don't know how to do that. I don't know what those requirements are, but, but they do. So, you know, again, people that are coming in blind and going, well, I'll just buy this and do that. It's like, do you have a civil engineer background to know that? I don't think you do. So you know, but again, that, that's, that's part right. of what you do that, that, that diligence for. And, and the, the larger deal that I was talking to you about that we we're, you know, maybe going to do something with that owner was willing to hold seller financing on it if we were willing to go through that process. Because it's like you said, if the deal falls flat or we don't close, that's value for that landowner to say, now look what I have. I already know. Because that's what happened. Somebody else bailed on them. Because I already know that they'll build yeah. 142 homes on here because the last guy who didn't close went through this whole process. So we already spent the money for you. So it's like, Okay, great. That makes your your job easier. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, that that's absolutely right, man. And uh, and yeah, you know, it's um, I think I, I think that uh, the important thing too is is you know that there's there's lots of, of opportunity out there, and uh, and making sure that you have a really really good engineer, like you touched on, man, is, is brilliant. The other thing is what you did in going in and talking to the community, talking to that town planner or the city planner or the county planner and asking the questions, right? What is, what, what do you think is the right thing to build on this piece of land? What do you think is the right thing to do on this piece of land? That's gold, right? Asking the right questions, getting the right answers um, and getting their input uh, because then it's their idea. So when you bring it back to them and you say, well, it was your idea to do, uh, 
you know, townhomes, here's, here you go. Here's a plan for townhomes, right? So you're working within, you're not trying to shove something down somebody's throat. You're working with what the community needs and what they want. Uh, that's the recipe for success right there. That's awesome. You know, and uh, I, I know when we were going along the, the process for that, a lot of the times I wanted to go off track and like, well, let's do this. Or he doesn't understand this. Like, you know, all the people I was talking to were saying, follow what he's saying. Just give him what he's asking for. And I didn't see how valuable that was until we actually went to the city meeting for the actual approval. And they had like, you know, 12, 14 old timers there all lined up. And then after we talked about everything with all of them, they all turned around and looked at our guy and were just like, all right, well, what do you think? And he was like, yep. And I was like, oh, yep. I was him all along, you know, and all she really needed, nothing we really said made a difference at all. It was all just a formality because at the end, they were going to look at that guy. And if that guy was in, we were in. And that was what happened. And I was like, oh, that's nice. Yeah. But that's it, you know, and, but you are very, very wise to go in and start by asking questions and not saying, well, you know, here's what I want to do and I want to do this and I want to do that. Instead, you just go in and, and you just start asking questions. Hey, I'm curious about this parcel, interested in it, you know, and uh, ask better questions, get better answers, right? There you go. Yeah. So on the sales <laughs> side now, um, I know you were helping to ask around a little bit. So it was interesting because, again, the broker, when I first was looking at this lot, he was like, man, people only want this small piece of land because they're scared to take on these bigger projects. And I was like, all right, well, that makes sense because there's these other bigger plans there. But then you started helping reach out to some of the bigger buyers in the area. And you were saying, no, it's actually small, but they would take these bigger ones. So um, if you're going into a project like that, obviously you're doing your diligence on the front side of it, but how early in the process are you starting to reach out to feel out the, the buyers, obviously like, Hey, are you looking to buy townhomes? Are you looking to buy a development? And, um, on that side, because I'm sure it's equally as important to see not only will the city let you do this, but is there anybody, if you're going to be selling that off, that's looking to buy that? Yeah, yeah absolutely right, man. That, that's, I pretty much start that right away. Um, as soon as I have the land tied up under a contract where I, I know that my rights are secured um, and I've gotten through that sort of initial density question of what is going to be allowed on this land, I pretty much immediately start reaching out to the to the folks I know and say, hey, look, I've got this coming down the pipeline. How do you feel about the condo project? How do you feel about this multifamily? How do you feel about this, you know, 120 lot single family residential subdivision? Uh, in and just gauge temperatures for different folks. And I think, you know, in your case, as well as in my case or in anyone's case, you really want to start to know who are your regional players, who are your your players that are in your area that are doing these projects. You just drive around. You can see them. You can you, you can see the guys out there doing it. Uh, you know who the who the big dogs are, who the middle players are, and who the small time folks are, and just gauge your project to those different potential buyers. But I start shopping it right away. Ever wanted to play the drums, or do you want to get your kids some drum lessons to burn some of that energy while they are all locked up? Take advantage of a free drum lesson with one of the tri-state area's most respected drummers, Dan Lamagna. Dan Lamagna has played in such bands as Crown of Thorns, Suicide City, Biohazard, The Real Mackenzies, Sworn Enemy, The Walls of Jericho. He has played all over the world and he is also endorsed by such companies as DW, Vader, and Sabian. Dan has taught tons of people from all different age groups and all different music styles. He can teach adults, kids, advanced, beginner, any types of styles from metal, all different types of percussion, whatever style you want. Get a free drum lesson today from Dan. All you need to do is text the word drummer 
D-R-U-M-M-E-R, to the number 833-482-0167. Again, text DRUMMER to 833-482-0167 for your free drum lesson. Yeah, you know, it's been an interesting time. You know, we were talking about it. So because of everybody being on lockdown, it's been really interesting to see, you know, for me, the jujitsu was the first thing that stuck it out for me that all these jujitsu schools that have these online programs and they have these, these, these web-based academies and all these great training resources, but they all have monthly memberships or annual memberships. They've been like, look, nobody can train. So we're just going to comp this for anybody who wants while everybody's quarantined or we'll give you like a ridiculous deal on it. So I went from like, what the hell am I going to do with my day all day to, I literally want to watch all of these guys while I can in jujitsu. And now I'm seeing the same exact thing happen with real estate. So it's been interesting to see the flow of content because a lot of these masterminds are going, look, because people are now stuck here, we're going to take our mastermind and do a virtual mastermind. And we usually charge $40,000. But while everybody's stuck here, you know what, for this month, you can just log in and be part of it for free. So I've been trying to take as much advantage as I can of really soaking up as much free resources as I can on the real estate side, on the jiu-jitsu yeah. side. But it, it's also been interesting because, I mean, it's I'm spending a lot of time listening to webinars all day because it's like, man, this guy I respect is doing a free one-hour thing. This one's talking about his state of the market. But some of them I'm logging on, I'm really excited to hear the speaker talk, and it's just them pitching, and, and it's done really poorly. And then there's other people that I know are notorious yeah. for pitching stuff, and they're going, I'm just going to lay it out and like tell you what I think is happening and give you some advice. And they're giving amazing content. And that's making right. them want to purchase their stuff. So I've been really watching the character of how people are capitalizing on this. And again, I, I'm, I'm not saying don't sell your courses, don't do those things, but provide some sort of value or feedback. Don't just go into it. Don't just gouge it because it's, it just looks cheap right now when there's yeah, so much good quality info from good people that are just giving it yeah. to help. So again, I've been trying to post YouTube videos and do more podcasts and just learn, but it, it's also interesting to hear very smart, credible people all have completely different opinions, you know? So when I went through the yeah. crash in 2008, I didn't have Facebook groups and masterminds and Zoom meetings and, and, and guys like you and advisors council that I could talk to to figure out what's happening in the business. It was, it was really scary and it felt very small. And now being able to live right. this whole community, it's it's interesting to hear all of it because anybody who says that they know what's going to happen is just lying. Nobody knows, That's right? Fucking, it's just it's all so new. It's all so different. So you can use logic to make some definite assumptions, but anybody who's going, I know what's going to happen. Buy my course. It's like, well, I'm not going to buy it now just because you are like crazy. Like, be honest and say, hey, you know, here's just some safety precautions I'm taking. Like you just said, man. Like, hey. I'm talking to my buyers. I'm being proactive. And, and that's what I'm finding. That's the biggest thing I'm pushing is just, you know, be proactive with your buyers, be proactive with your lenders, be proactive with your banks, stay plugged in and, and look at some of the things that are happening, but don't go make any big changes in your business right now. Wait 30, 60, 90 days to see where this stuff all starts to land. Cause we have no that's idea right. where we are right now on this. Is this the very beginning? Is it all going to go back tomorrow or is this something that's going to change stuff for the next two years? I mean, I really have no idea. <laughs> Nobody knows. That's right, man. Nobody knows. Uh, but, uh, you know, I don't know how much more time you have, but I'll share with you an interesting um, an interesting thing that uh, I was on a call with a gentleman earlier today about, and we were talking about um, 
assisted living facilities. I'm, I'm very interested in those and I'm looking at, uh, you know, maybe developing some or purchasing existing ones that, uh, you know, have a value add restabilization, you know, potential addition to them. Anyway, that, that's an asset class that I'm interested in. I've been studying now for a while. Um, but uh, this is, so back to this event, this is uncharted territory. Nobody knows what's going to happen. We've never been here before. No one ever, no, no one knows where we are in it and no one knows where it's going. Um, this gentleman was very clear that uh, something similar is going to happen in 10 years, 2030 specifically. You know, it could be eight years, could be 12 years, but somewhere in that time frame, uh, we're going to be in uncharted territory. And it's something that we all know is coming, but, uh, but I, we, he questioned whether or not um, society systems the market and, and, and et cetera, are actually doing something to plan for it. And that's that in 2030, the United States population, over 24% of it will be over 65. We've never had that happen ever before. And they're not going to be contributing to the stock market anymore into the equities. They're going to be pulling out. And what does that do? Nobody knows, right? At the same time, China, Japan, some other very you know, large, uh, um, uh, economies and in that same time frame, 10 years from now, their population over 65 is going to be more like 30, 34%. Globally, what does that do? Uh, we jokingly said, you know, well, let's, let's buy stock in companies that make adult pampers now, but, uh, <laughs> but in all seriousness, you know, it just, it's just something, you know, as you're in this moment of, oh my God, we didn't know this was coming. Where are we? What's happening? Uh, plan for the next one because it's gonna happen, right? And let's learn from, from what we're going through now, how to create your own stability around you and what you're doing, and then allow that to emanate to others and create a, uh, a community of stability in what is seemingly this unstable environment. And um, I don't know, that struck me really as, as interesting philosophy to be thinking about what's happening in 10 years as opposed to What's happening right now? Where are we going to be in two months, six months, a year? Everybody's talking about that, right? But how do we learn from this and actually prepare for the next one, which is going to be completely different? Uh, and um, that's why I'm looking at buying assisted living facilities. <laughs> that's exactly why you're my guy, because I, I feel the same way. Everybody's freaking out about next week. And I'm like, no, this is a wake-up call because, you know, we've been talking for a couple of years now about how the market's way overdue for a correction like all these things were going to happen i don't think yeah. anybody knew that like a virus was going to cause it but i mean we've all seen the writing on the wall that this can't continue the way it is so i'm looking at it as this yep. probably isn't going to be the nail in the coffin that sends it down i think there'll be a resurgence but it is going to correct so what do you do how do you plan for three years five years ten years 15 years from now and this really kicked me in the ass for like i'm going to go out there and i'm going to really ramp this up because you just never know when another virus or something worse is going to come around and a lot of people, yeah, they're pulling out, they're getting nervous with their money, but there's also people that just took a beating on their stock and their retirement. And it's, I think, a great time to go and educate them of, if you would have done that with me on some real estate deals two years ago, three years ago, it wouldn't have been that a big deal. You wouldn't have lost 25% of what you had, and you wouldn't be sitting at home wondering, you know, what could have happened if I would have done this. And I think the, the real reality that they had to rely on their job or that they thought they had a secure job that all of a sudden they just got laid off for. They lost their medical benefits. I think it's going to be a great time to go up and ramp up that business and get some good private money. And again, the only thing that's potentially 
up in the air for me now is depending on what they're going to do as far as institutional lending for, you know, refinancing out of those private money loans into rentals or doing some type of portfolio loans or refinancing out of those multi-unit deals. How is that going to look? What's that going to be? But again, it's just, there was time lending was bad. Still people made a lot of money. Time lending was good. People made a lot of money. It's just a matter of pivoting and adjusting. It doesn't mean that, you know, our businesses is going to stop. You just, you shift, you adjust, you move with the market. Yeah. You know, you know, what's going to be interesting too, man, is uh, about a week from now, it's going to be real interesting to see uh, how much rent we get on our investment properties, right? And how much we don't. That, this is the first, April 1st is going to be the, this is the first month that this is going to affect how people pay rent. You know, I had great, great economic occupancy for March 1st, but this event hadn't occurred yet. Now, what, what happens for April 1st? I think that's really going to be a very, very telling marker is, you know, a week from today uh, or, you know, a week and a half from today, let's say, um, what is the economic occupancy of a lot of these income producing assets and uh, what kind of ripple does that send? Yeah, for sure. You know, and I, I think one of the things I've been looking at too, is I'm seeing on the wholesale side, a lot of people are still wholesaling properties to cash buyers. Cash buyers are still getting their crews in there to fix properties up, but I'm curious oh, yeah. in 30, 60, 90 days, those buyers that they're selling to, to, to move in that are going to get conventional loans and FHA loans, are they still going to be able to get them? Because if they're not, you're going to feel the effects of now all these buyers that were buying a fix and flip, they're not buying anymore. So now you have to readjust your whole wholesale strategy to maybe sell towards renters. And then how are they paying for their property? So that's going to be interesting to me too. But I can't see them not doing something that if they're allowing people to not pay rent, how do you still require the owners to pay their mortgages? And, and they're not going to want people to default 30, 60, 90 days and then take these assets back. I'm just, I don't know what they're going to do about it. I'm just, it's going to be interesting to see, but I can't see them just letting everything collapse like that because the guy owns a hundred unit apartment building and everybody in that building goes, oh, I don't have to pay rent. That guy's coming out of pocket to pay a hundred people's rent that month for like, it's just, how does that even work? Yeah, no, what, it, what has to happen is, you know, if, if there's rent forgiveness, there also has to be, you know, forbearance uh, agreements uh, with, with uh, lenders uh, so that, again, the money's all still due to everyone, but it's, a, it's sort of a cascading waterfall effect where we got to get rent from our tenants, then we can pay the mortgages. Um, so I think there would just have to be a balance there of forbearance to keep the, the loan payments for, you know, again, 90 days. Um, to allow everything to restabilize. Um, so whether or not that happens, I don't know, but uh, to me, that would be the appropriate mechanism to use, right? To, to sort of make it fair for everyone. Totally. Um, but, you know, a lot of folks have, uh, you know, capital reserves uh, in entities that, you know, maybe you could pull from capital reserves to, to pay, you know, debt on assets. And, and again, I don't think that, I don't think that 50% of the people aren't gonna pay rents. I think it's going to be more like maybe 10 to 20%. Uh, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Let's, let's talk in a week and a half and see. <laughs> and see <what> <laughs> I'll let you know exactly what my assets are doing. <laughs> for sure. For sure. So in the meantime, I know because your projects are, are bigger projects and they take longer and everything's on hold. What are you doing business wise right now to, to focus or keep yourself busy? Or are you just kind of sitting waiting to see how everything plays out? Yeah. So um, I, I am actually going after uh, a little more aggressively some of the C-class and sort of destabilized assets that I see out there in, in the large multifamily space. Um, 
because I know that that capital market is really dried up right now. So there's very few people who can afford or have access to the capital that actually close on a destabilized asset like that. You know, I'm talking 20 to 50% vacancy rates, right? Um, 60, 70% expense ratios on, on large multifamily complexes. And um, I still think, I still believe in that forced appreciation model uh, and, and, you know, buying destabilized, uh, infusing capital and, and getting them stabilized and then holding them, refinancing them. I think the refinance into agency debt, I think that market's going to stay fine. That mezzanine bridge product that gets you from, you know, the destabilized asset to the stabilization process. I think we are going to see, you know, a, a lot of basis point increase in interest rates on that type of product for, for, for loans. Uh, and what I'm doing is, is going after those pretty hard, you know, cash flow wise, we're still building houses. We're still, uh, you know, flipping properties. We're still, you know, doing things for cash flow uh, to support us during these times. And, uh, you know, worst case scenario, there's, there's a couple of things that, that we could get rid of that aren't really producing a lot of income, but, uh, but have a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of cash sitting in them right now that we could tap into. But like everyone, if you don't have six months of cash reserves, this is a big wake up call to, to make sure that you did or that you do going forward. Um, but I don't see this thing going past six months anyway. So we're just kind of staying the course. Um, we're doing some of the soft things. Uh, like we can still talk to the road agents, right? And we can still get some traffic studies done with the Department of Transportation. So in the entitlement projects, we're still do doing some things that we can do on the soft project side of things that don't involve the, the complete uh, planning board uh, or entitlement process, but they're still part of the process, if you will. I don't know if I explained that well, but yeah, there's, yeah. there's aspects of the approval that still need to be done that, uh, that don't require public input. And, and those are the things that we're kind of checking those boxes now while we can. I love it, man. Uh, you're just, I love talking to guys that in a time like this, you're not taking it to the town to be lazy. You're making sure you get done what you need to get done. And uh, I think it's, it's, it's going to thin the herd a little bit right now. I think people are going to going to lean into yeah. some of the downtime and other guys are going to capitalize on it. And uh, I'm excited to see what, what you do with it, man. Uh, I, I really, I appreciate that you jumped on and you, you adjusted your time for me. I've been wanting to talk to you for a little while about this stuff, but yeah. I just find what you do uh, fascinating, man. And you really, yeah, you got good energy, you explain things really well. Like I can tell you're excited. I can tell you know your stuff. And, you know, I appreciate all the, the help you were giving me on the evaluating the project and calling the buyers and stuff in our area, man. How can I help you? How can I help Shane Carter? Well, um, you know, let, let's, uh, let's, let's do some projects together. You know, I, I think for me, it's, it's all about, you know, uh, collaboration um, and how I can help you and, and be a good business partner to you. So let's collaborate. Let's, uh, let's do some land development deals. Um, let's do some multifamily deals. There was a couple in, in uh, Chicago that I was looking at that I, you know, I immediately pegged you and said, yep, Nick's my guy. You know, if I get this thing to close. Um, but as I dr drilled into a couple of them a little bit more, uh, you know, really bad areas, right? Really, really heavy lift um, and not enough juice there. So too, too risky. But, uh, but yeah, some, some more deals come up uh, that uh, would make sense. I'd love to part partner with you on land. I'd love to partner with you on multifamily assets. Uh, you know, I, I, think you're, I think you're a great guy too, man. I definitely appreciate you having me on and, and uh, you definitely know what you're doing. So any, any way I can be a part of uh, 
the Nick LaMagna process. I'm, I'm happy to be a part of it, man. I love that, man. You know, I just, again, b being in things, you know, people, people, oh, masterminds, this and that, but coming across, you know, some of the guys like you and Lee and just collaborating and learning about what everybody else is doing, it's just been huge, man. It's really up my game and just opened my eyes to a lot of different opportunities. So, you know, we have this office space here now as soon as we're freaking allowed to go back to it. Um, you know, yeah. we're guns blazing, got some new AMs um, up in the marketing around here for some of the distressed assets that, you know, talking to a lot of people, I think there's some older projects in some nicer areas that we can really come in and take down that aren't in some of those more risky parts of the city. There's some in my areas around the development where you were looking. Um, yeah. Man, we, we can definitely go and take them down. So uh, people want to find you and connect with you. Uh, Facebook, Instagram, websites. Um, how do people find you, follow you, contact you? Yeah. Um, so yeah, Facebook, you know, LinkedIn, uh, just Shane Carter, New Hampshire, that'll pretty much get you to me. Um, and, and either of those, uh, you know, my, our website is cipglobal.net. Um, CIP obviously for community investment properties. Uh, but yeah, I would love to connect and collaborate and help anyone I can help out. That's awesome, man. Again, I, I thank you for your time. I can't wait to put this out. I think what you do is, is absolutely like phenomenal and interesting. And I, I'm just, I'm blown away by it, man. So thank you for your time. I will, uh, I'll also shoot you um, some links for some of these masterminds that are giving some free 30, 60 day stuff, man. So you can jump on, see if there's some, good yeah, there should be pretty cool. All right, man. Thanks, Nick. Appreciate it, brother. Stay safe. Wash your hands. <laughs> yeah, you too, man. Well, I'll touch base with you this week. Thanks, Shane. All right. See ya. Take it easy, bro. If you guys are getting anything from the podcast and some of the great knowledge and tips that the guests are sharing, please take a minute and leave a review on iTunes or any of your platforms with some stars and some comments, helping spread the promotion and spread some visibility for the podcast, for the guests, and for the knowledge so we can continue to do this. It'd only take a minute. I appreciate it. If you guys could take the time, it would go a very, very long way. Again, leave a review on iTunes, start to share, start to spread the word. I really would appreciate it if you're getting anything out of this. Thank you.